Good morning. Uh, if you're a guest, like Luke said, we're really excited that you're here with us today. My name is Josue Pernillo, and I'm the pastoral intern, which means that I'm still learning. And so be gracious with me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But if you could please turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. We're back in the letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we could gather here this Sunday morning. Thank you for beautiful spring days like this and yesterday. We just ask that as we look into your scripture, would you speak to us? Would you help us? Would you strengthen us? To those that are downcast or hurting, that you would encourage them. To those that do not want to turn from their sin, that you would rebuke them, Lord. We look to you, our gracious and heavenly Father. Would you help us this morning? And would you help me, Lord, even as I speak? Help me to speak in humility and clarity. We look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I have a question. I usually start my sermons with questions. Uh, and this one's a little spicy, which I might retire that word because I've been using it too much. But here's the first question. What is the most intense disagreement that you've had with somebody? Uh, it's an important question to consider. Not only what type of interaction it was when you disagreed, but how you reacted when you disagreed. Some people raise their voice. Others give a cold shoulder. Some people start making awkward jokes. Some people don't say anything. Divisions and disagreements are a part of our world. We live in a divided world. It feels at times that it is politically advantageous and fiscally profitable to be divided. And it is easy to find things to be divided over. There are reasons to fight sometimes, molehills to elevate and chasms to seek. We can argue about the government, the best place to get breakfast, um, Android, and I do know the best place to get breakfast, that's why I left, but Android versus Apple and things like that. How should we as Christians approach disagreements that we have with one another and what should be our attitude when we have those disagreements? This week we're looking at the letter to the Philippians. The letter contains many beautiful themes which we've gone over, themes like joy, deep Christology, eschatology, living with a gospel mindset, and the topic of today's sermon, unity and harmony. The past, today's passage, we engage one of the most beautiful themes, unity. The Philippian church is in the midst of both external pressures and internal tensions. They are facing pressures from the outside, but here in this week's passage, we see the tensions that they are facing from the inside the things that threaten to tear their church apart. And so Paul, in his letter, begins to address these concerns in a manner where he aims to encourage them and exhort them 
and how they should face their struggles internally. We will see the appeal of the seasoned apostle to those who are under his care and how to maintain peace and unity in the midst of disagreements and internal tensions. And we will see that because of the encouragement of Christ, we can experience unity. Because of the encouragement of Christ, we can experience unity. We will see that in three points. The gospel source of unity. Second point is the gospel experience of unity. And the third point, the gospel reaction to unity. So first point, the gospel source of unity. And that's verse one. This passage begins by explaining the encouragement and comfort that a Christian has in Christ. The first verse is a series of four if statements. If there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, any participation, and any affection. These four statements serve as a beautiful way to describe the benefits that a Christian has in Christ. It is not clear on the amount that you have, but the question is, do you have these in any quantity? For example, to those who are being persecuted externally, as they face pressures, do they have any encouragement in Christ? To those who are disheartened, do they have any comfort from the love of Christ? To those who are lonely and feel isolated, they are reminded of the participation that they have in the spirit and in the midst of any struggle of the affection and sympathy they have in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the Christians at Philippi of those benefits received by those who are in Christ. In a manner, he is reminding them of the objective truth that shapes their life. And this serves, as we look at the rest of the verses, as an invitation to reflect. In the midst of the messiness of life, in the midst of external pressures or even internal tensions, do you have any encouragement? Do you have any comfort, any participation, and any sympathy? He reminds them that they are united to Christ even in the midst of trouble. The Philippians had been united to Christ and they are encouraged and strengthened in him. Jesus is the source. And it is this that will serve as the basis on which he will call them to unity, which are our next two points. Paul is about to challenge them, not only that they should strive together in the midst of external pressures, but in humility be united in the midst of internal tensions. That there are those things from the outside that threaten to destroy the church, but there are also those things from the inside that threaten to tear the church apart. The source of the unity of the church, is what he's telling them, is Christ himself. They are united to Christ, and in that, they are united to each other. Jesus is the one who encourages. He is the one that comforts. In him, we participate in the spirit. In him, we experience sympathy. And in that manner, we can also experience, experience those things within the church. He will, he will proceed to explain that because of the encouragement we have in Christ, we can experience unity. I grew up with two older siblings. And this is generally true, but it's not true for everybody. If you have siblings, you fight with your siblings, right? And I was the youngest sibling, which meant one thing. I always washed the dishes. And now I like washing dishes, mostly out of practice and habit, because I'm great at it and it makes me feel good about myself. 
But when I would get angry and mad and argue, why am I washing dishes? Like, I always have to do everything. You know, like when you're young and like that's the argument you make to your parents. Like, I do everything around here and you don't do like anything. You know, I think my mom would just look at me and say, you wash their dishes because they're your family. Your brother mows the lawn, not because he cares about the lawn, but because your family. That's what brings you together. Yes, sometimes you wash more dishes than you should, but you do it for your family. We will continue in the sermon to discuss what it looks like to be united. And it's important to discuss, but it's also important to discuss why we are united. If you know why you do something, the action is more sustainable. The passage today begins in an important place. Why should we aim for unity? Why should we be the first to say sorry? Why, why, for a lack of a better term, put up with each other? Or why should we seek to reconcile, understand, and forgive each other? The why of all these things is because we are reconciled to God. We may not share the same background, both ethnic and socioeconomic. In a group this big, everybody has different musical preferences, a different childhood experience, but there is, with us, a blessed tie that binds. There is something as Christians that bring us together, and that is Jesus. That's where we begin. We will continue by describing the experience of unity, but before that, let's pause and reflect of any encouragement you have received in Christ, of any comfort of love, of any participation in his spirit, and of any affection and sympathy, because that's the source. You can't give what you don't have, but we have a source. It is Christ that brings us together. And with that, we go to the second point. If it is that Christ that brings us together, what does it look like to come together? And that's verse two, the experience of unity. We now take time to consider what Paul is telling them about the experience they have in unity. He begins by saying, make my joy complete, which I just want to say, it's a beautiful thing that he's saying. He could have told them as an apostle, I command you to do these things, but he doesn't because Philippians is a letter of the apostle to his friends. So he tells them, this would make me happy. This was what would make me happy. This is what would make my joy complete. It's not that you would send me more money. It's not that you would give me more things. It's that you would be united. And so he begins with the appeal, being of the same mind and of one mind, which I agree is confusing. Um, and so we're gonna delve into that pretty deeply right now in the second point. What does it mean to be of the same mind and he repeats it again. What does it mean to be of one mind? If you notice, he says, being of the same mind, then he gives a description of love, you know, a, de a description of accordance with anything, and then he repeats the same thing again, being of one mind. So why does he repeat it twice, and what does that mean? First, the verb that he's using means to think, or mind, is used several times in the letter to the Philippians, in eight different verses, sometimes multiple times in each verse. In Philippians, it has come to be used as an appeal for people to reconcile. We see that in verses four and chapter four, verse two, when Paul is appealing to two members of the Philippian church to reconcile and to come to terms. 
I think to help us understand what Paul is saying by being of the same mind, we have to understand the fact that the church of Philippi was struggling seriously with internal tensions because even close friends can be pulled apart by disagreements. Uh, when you're little, it's about which toy you're gonna play. When you're older, it gets more complicated. Paul understands and appeals to his friends to come together with each other and the, and the use of the word that he uses here to think has three basic meanings. First, it can be used to have an opinion with regard to something. Second, it can be used to give careful consideration to something. And third, to develop a thought based on careful thought. Okay. So he's not telling the Philippians not to think and just agree with other people, right? because he's using a verb that says to carefully think. What he's saying is to have the attitude of mind that gives careful consideration to the other person in the midst of disagreements. It's not just a description of what they believe, but of their general attitude towards one another. That's how he takes that. When he says have the same mind, and later in verse four and five, he says have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus and gives a description of his humility. What he's saying is when you consider another person, carefully consider the other person. When in the midst of a disagreement, think about where the other person is coming from. The thing which brings them into conflict is not clear. It could be as they face external pressures, there, has, there had arisen internal divisions within people. You always see this in families, like when the whole family's in the car and they're trying to find the parking spot and you can't find the parking spot, what usually happens? The parents start fighting. Right? Like, isn't that funny? Why? Because there's this external pressure of the parking spot, and now there's an internal tension within the car. I don't know if that's how your family was, and I'm sorry if it was. Um, it could be a doctrinal disagreement that they have, or even a personal disagreement about a certain practice or idea. Paul doesn't clarify what the division is, but he challenges them to carefully consider the other person. Paul is not saying that people should become copies of each other regurgitating what another person has thought deeply about. Rather, he is saying, when you have disagreements, consider the other person. He does not ignore the fact that they have conflict. He does not command them to just squash the beef. He calls them to come to terms with one another. The appeal, when he's talking about the mind, is a general attitude towards one another, that when you have disagreements, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. Consider the other person. This verse is like a sandwich, okay? And the bread of that sandwich is that having the same mind, which means that the meat and the cheese, or whatever it is that you put in your sandwich, is having the same love and being on full accord. Love there being emphasizing the general compassion and affections that you should have towards one another. He's saying it's not just a mere intellectual exercise, but that attitude that you have towards other people should overflow into loving other people in the midst of those disagreements, as Christ loves us, right? And being of the same accord can be translated into having the same purpose, same goals, and direction. It is not just their minds that he's telling them to be engaged, but also their hearts and their hands. The way that they consider one another in the midst of arguments, overflows into the love and the goals that they have together as the church of Christ. Since Christ is the source of their unity, the Philippians are called to practice unity with each other, especially when they have disagreements. 
to be willing to consider the other person, to be willing to love another person in the midst of those arguments, and to move together towards a common goal as they discuss those things. Because of the gospel, they are called to experience this kind of unity. Because they're encouraged in Christ, they're called to experience unity even in the midst of tensions. In Guatemala, there's a phrase, a soldier is not made in the academy, he's made in the battle. You don't understand unity until you disagree. You don't understand what unity and how united you are until you can't decide where to keep going and how you handle that disagreement. I think it is helpful to understand that Paul is not saying that we should lose all individual autonomy. And even if we disagree, to pretend that we do not to maintain a sense of harmony with each other or groups of people. That's not what Paul is saying. Our calling as Christians is not to ignore disagreements or to pretend that there are no problems. Our calling as Christians is also not to have uniformity in the sense that we agree on every little thing. Rather, our calling is to strive for unity when we do have disagreements in our attitude towards one another and the manner with which we handle those disagreements. The Christian attitude and disposition is that of a peacemaker, someone who strives for unity and reconciliation. There can be many things that cause divisions and tensions between groups of people, whether it's a personal offense, a perceived disagreement, different personalities, conflicting goals and interests, and things like that. It is not just theological disagreements that can tear people apart. There are many things that can divide people and groups of people. There are certainly conflicts, even within our own church, between people for various reasons. The calling of the Christian is to address the disagreements in a gracious and gentle manner. You today may have been offended. You may disagree. You may be uncertain about a certain approach or practice. But even if that is the case, in the midst of that conflict, the Christian is called as best to their ability as they can to reconcile to come and discuss these things, which is a tremendously hard thing to do. If you were offended, it is okay to go and express that hurt. How easy it is to walk up to somebody and tell them that they offended you. If you disagree with a statement, even if it's between mine and less so with Luke, it is okay to come and express that disagreement. If you have questions about the way things are going or the way things are being handled, it is okay to bring that up to the elders. Don't bring it up to me because I can't do anything. Right? Um, but even as you do those things, remember gentleness and graciousness is key. And even as you come up for those conversations, also remember you might be wrong as well. It is that attitude that Paul is appealing to. It is an attitude that means that we can experience unity. Unity is not shown when we all agree on the same thing, but in the way that we treat each other when we disagree. The respect and graciousness that we show each other. Unity is shown even when you discuss hard things 
to try to understand the other person better, and even to admit when you're wrong or to confront with the fact that they might be wrong. Because other people can be wrong too. It is not just a theological argument which points to the most internally consistent, although it can be that. The experience of unity that we have because of Jesus is the attitude that different people treat each other with in the midst of disagreements. That's the gospel experience of unity. So if that is our source of unity, if that is our experience of unity, how then can we experience this more? And what would that look like? And that's verses three to four. So if Christ is the source of our unity, which is that which overflows to the experience of unity, the seasoned apostle now begins to explain those things which helps or harms that experience. We look at verses three and four. He is comparing contrary ideas, that of selfish ambition and that of humility. And these two things help elaborate that mind, which we talked about in the previous verse, which we are called to have in Christ Jesus. So we will handle them one at a time. But the point being that Paul is calling the Philippians to give of themselves for the sake of another, which I didn't come up with that phrase. It was Luke. So if you like it, you can thank him after the sermon. But to give of themselves for the sake of another. We will discuss what Paul calls them to avoid first. First, he calls them to avoid selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is a sort of quarreling attitude that was warned about in Philippians 1.17, which was evident in those who opposed Paul. So Paul, a little earlier, had said, some are preaching Christ out of good intentions, other are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Right? So he first gives the example of his own situation and then explains that to their situation. It is not only the desire to fight and argue, but also that their motive was inappropriate. This motive is further emphasized by the phrase vain conceit, which the combination of these two words is really trying to convey the term empty glory. He is warning them of this selfish ambition and the imposing of themselves and then desires for them to gain empty glory. What he's saying is there are these people and their motive is to promote themselves. And the reason that they want to promote themselves is because they want to glorify themselves. But in the end, that is empty glory. To use others for their own glory. To exalt themselves in the midst of pressure. He's telling them not to impose themselves on others for their own sake. Do not be this way, he says. He elaborates on that further when he, he says that in verse 4, let each of you not look only to his own interests, which is an important qualifier. He's not saying that you should not have any interests, but he uses the word only to say that you should not only look to your own interests. You should not be completely preoccupied with yourself or primarily with yourself. To consider your opinions the most interesting, what's happening to you the most important, your problems to be the most difficult, your achievements to be the most victorious. He warns them against that. So if Paul warns them against selfish ambition and vainglory, which is the selfish promoting of themselves to glorify themselves in the midst of these tensions, what does he call them to? He calls them to, in humility, consider others as greater than yourself. The humility here described as preoccupation with another person, 
It is for the sake of another, but something has to be clarified. Paul calls them to give up themselves for the sake of another, but not to diminish or destroy themselves for the sake of another. There is an issue of those who impose themselves on other people. But there's also a problem with those who have no opinion about anything, no interests or no desires, because that's not what Paul is calling them to. Paul is not calling them to a complete destruction of their individual autonomy and, and for them to function within the machinery of the church. Humility is not putting yourself down or denying the fact that you're a person with needs and thoughts. Humility is rather a preoccupation with another. It is the giving of the self for the sake of another. If selfish ambition tempts our motives to do things for our own glory, humility calls us to give of ourselves for the sake of another, and that's the key. Paul challenges them to give of themselves. That's why in verse four he says, look not only, not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Caring for others, does that mean that you have no interests or desires? But the question is the attitude. Who do you put first? It is in this putting others first where we deeply experience unity. It is because of the encouragement they received in Christ that they can put other people first. And what would it look like to be in a community where everybody puts another person first? That's what he's challenging to. This is what I thought of. Imagine you, your friends, or your family are coming together for dinner tonight. And you had a long day. And you're having chicken, fried or baked, or whatever chicken you like. If it's steak, it's okay. But I like chicken. So the example is chicken. And there is clearly always a best piece of chicken, if you've ever had chicken. And you're eating family style, and you got the sides, and you got the chicken. And you want that best piece of chicken. But you know the person next to you had a long day. And so you call, reach over, and you grab the piece of chicken, and you put it on their plate. You still get chicken, right? You just don't get the best piece of chicken. But imagine it's next week, and you've had a long day. And somebody reaches over, grabs the best piece of chicken, and puts it on your plate. It's a dumb example, I know. But the principle stands to look out for other people. It doesn't mean you don't get nothing. But to look out for the interests of others. There are different types of people in our church with different personalities. These verses help us answer not only why we have come together, but how we come together. This passage frees us from becoming bulldozers and doormats. We shouldn't be bulldozers with other people. We shouldn't try to impose our opinion in clear or indirect ways. We cannot always have our way. We are not always right. You don't always know what's best. There are things of which you are not an expert. Every idea that comes out of your head is not golden. You don't always know the best restaurant to eat. You're not always right about who should do the dishes. You are not the only person that knows how to load a dishwasher, believe it or not. We are not experts in everything or should be the ones that make decisions about everything. We are a church and a body that's called to work together. 
And that means that different people have different skills and strengths. It doesn't mean that you can't share your own opinion, but it honestly means that you can be wrong. And part of what's beautiful about being in a church is that you learn each other's strengths and weaknesses. We don't have to force our own way. We don't have to do things out of selfish ambition. But because Christ is our source of encouragement, we can look at how he's working in the lives of other people. And we can come together to consider another person's opinion and approach and admit when we are wrong. And even admit when other people are wrong too. It's okay. But it also means that we should not be doormats. You can have desires. You can have opinions. God made each and every one of us with specific gifts and skills. And being humble is not a destruction of your autonomy or individuality. Considering another person's interest is not thinking that you are nothing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. We are made better and fuller because God in his sovereignty brought you to our church. God called us and you to be a part of this body. And we need you to share what you think and why you think it's important. You're not just a wheel in a cog, not just a part in a machine. You're not just a part of the whole. There is a poem that I love, and I read it to myself sometimes, but it begins by saying, in a field, I am the absence of the field. This is always the case. Wherever I am, I am what is missing. God in his grace brought you to our church. And we're glad you're here. Humility is not the destruction of yourself, but it is in giving of yourself for the sake of another. You are a person and you need to give of yourself. You have skills and gifts, and there is a wonderful beauty in learning those gifts in the service of others. You do not need to be a doormat. You have opinions and thoughts, and it is okay to say them. And as we all serve each other, and in gentleness and graciousness grow, we will see the slow and beautiful maturing of our family. Christ is the source of our unity. He is what brings us together. Our purpose and direction of life are wrapped up and found in him. And because Christ is the source, we can experience a sort of relationships where even in the midst of conflict, we consider another person's interests. And we are called to mature in those relationships by putting those people before ourselves. It is because Jesus is our encouragement that we can experience unity. There is a hymn that I love, and I love ending with hymns because I didn't discover hymns till I was like 22 or something. They handed me a hymnal in one of the churches I walked in, and I thought I was in a Catholic church because nobody had ever handed me a hymnal before. It was really funny for me because I was like scared throughout the whole service. But over the years, I've come to love hymns, and I want to end with one that I think summarizes what I've been trying to communicate. It reads like this, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like that to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. 
When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious, glorious hope revives our courage by the way, while each in expectation lives and longs to see the day. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign throughout all eternity. We are called to be together by Christ. He is the source. And so let us in humility consider other people, their strengths and their gifts, as they also consider ours. We serve one another, and in so doing, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these moments where we can come and look into your word. Help us to be united not only in word, but also in our hearts, even in the midst of tensions and disagreements, that we can be encouraged by your word to come together, to look to you and to serve one another. Lord, you are good and gracious to us. You watch over all of our steps in the good times and in the bad. And so we trust in you. Help us, Lord, in those difficult moments where we have to admit when we're wrong. And help us, Lord, when we have to confront someone else when we think they're wrong. That we would do so in a heart of humility and reconciliation, knowing that we are forgiven in you. Knowing that you are our source and our delight. Knowing that in the midst of trouble, you are the one who encourages us, comforts us. You have given us your spirit. And so with that, Lord, help us to be compassionate towards one another. To be gracious. That even in the midst of disagreements, Lord, we could come together. And that the whole world would see that we are yours by our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.